When you worship well, you will live wisely. When you engage in a sustained worship, meditation upon the Son of Man, that's when your life will start to reflect one who is in union with the Son of Man. We must all give more to simply seeing the Son. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three in our six-part series, What's in a Name, with Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text continues in the seventh chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, with particular attention to verses 13 and 14. When a number of Israelites are captured and taken from Judah to Babylon, Daniel stands out among the youth and with a few others, is placed into the conquering king's service. In due time, God gives Daniel several visions, and the one recorded in chapter 7 predicts the future coming of the Son of Man. Several figures populate in this vision, but two dominate it. First, the Ancient of Days, seated on a throne of power and glory. This great figure, representing God the Father enthroned in fiery flames, grants dominion, glory, and a kingdom to a second figure, quote, like a son of man, who travels on the heavenly clouds. This represents Jesus, who will come as the son of man and Messiah, who will be revealed to Israel and signifies how one day he will arrive on earth to lead his kingdom. Here's part three of What's in a Name? Look at the text. See how this son of man travels with the clouds of heaven. In the ancient Near East, which is the the cultural realm into which you're stepping when you open the Old Testament, in that world of thought, when anybody traveled on clouds, they were understood to be a god. It's like a mode of transport that is reserved for the gods alone. Not only that, but look at how he comes face to face with the Ancient of Days. Scripture tells us no one has ever seen God and lived. And here we see one coming face to face with the Ancient of Days. And then look at the nature of his reign. He's given dominion, glory, a kingdom. All peoples and nations and languages serve him. His dominion is everlasting. It shall not pass away. It's a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. All the characteristics of this reign suggest that it is divine. It is a God-like kingdom. And when you sum it all up, it is reasonable to imply that this Son of Man is different from his predecessors in so much as he is God. He is God in the flesh, or in creation language, he is the perfect image bearer of God. In a way that this text does not fully explain, in a way that other parts of Scripture explain more fully, what we can affirm here that in some way the Son of Man is both a man, a human, and at the same time, He is God. And so when you move again to the Gospels and Jesus is using Son of Man language, He is often drawing on the divine aspect of this character. 
In fact, more times than not, when Jesus uses the phrase son of man, he's implying his deity. Now think about that. It's interesting. If I had asked you this evening, before we open this text, what does son of man mean? Maybe you would have said, well, that's where Jesus is referring to his humanity. And it's true. There are times when he is leaning upon his human nature, as we've already seen. But most often, when Jesus employs this phrase, he is implying his deity, directly from Daniel 7. Think about that incident where they lowered the paralytic through the roof. The crowds are gathering round so that they couldn't get to Jesus. They pull back the roof. They lower down the paralytic. And Jesus says two things. He says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. And the scribes are grumbling. They don't like it. They're saying in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing all things, responds to them and he says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Go to the other end of the gospel narrative. Think about the trial of Jesus. They say, are you the Son of God? So are you the Son of God? And he confesses, he says, I am. But then he, he augments the confession. He adds to it. He says, by the way, I'm also the Son of Man. He says, from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of power, and the scribes and the Pharisees scream in response. They cover their ears and they shout out loud because they hate it. They call out for his death based upon that confession because they know Daniel 7 and they understand exactly what he's doing. He is saying, I am God. And so as we understand that this marks the Son of Man's ministry, we see that it is a claim to ultimate authority, both now and when he comes. And this claim to authority is for us both a challenge and a comfort. The challenge is obvious. The Son of Man will come very soon. He will establish his kingdom on this earth. Every person will acknowledge him. His authority will be made manifest in a way that has never been seen before. The immediate implication is that you must strive to obey this Son of Man now. Whatever the particulars of your life, whatever your job situation or your family situation or your financial situation or your health, whatever the particulars, there can be no excuses. Every person must strive to obey the Son of Man because he possesses ultimate authority. And the great problem that we have today is simply one of choice. We live in an age where we are overwhelmed by options in everything that we do. And in some circumstances, the options that we have are a good thing. We're very privileged to enjoy those options. But one of the downsides is that choice, options, can blur the lines of truth. Options can blur the lines of authority. If you don't like what you're hearing, choose a different option. We are well reminded that there are four other kings in this vision, and none of them succeed. 
There are four other options in this vision, and all of them are destroyed. There is one ultimate authority. And although presently you do not see his reign fully made manifest on this earth, he will be here in the flash of an eye. In an instant, every eye will see him. And on that day, everyone will acknowledge that he is the ultimate authority and there is no other option. So the challenge is that you would strive this day to obey the Son of Man, that you would do all that you can to conform your life to the commands of Christ because he possesses ultimate authority as the Son of Man. The comfort, if we turn that coin over, the comfort is that there are four other kings in this vision, and they are all destroyed. We do live in a time where the evangelical church in the Western world has enjoyed an abnormal level of privilege and peace. And it would be foolish to think that that will continue forever. The indications are that with every passing year, freedom of religion that we have enjoyed is being substituted for freedom from religion. The indications are that with every single passing year, the freedom of religion that we've enjoyed is being reduced to a freedom of worship. And they're two very different things. It is one thing to be free to gather together on a Sunday and worship in private. It's a very different thing to have the freedom to articulate Christian thought in the public sphere. The indications are that with every year, the freedom of religion that we have enjoyed is being successfully rebranded as bigotry. And what that means is that the The children, your children will grow up in a society, your grandchildren will grow up in a world that looks very different, most likely from the one that we presently exist in. The comfort is that there are four other kings in this vision and all of them are destroyed. Again, yes, this vision does refer to four kingdoms in time, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome, absolutely. But can you not see that this is a paradigm for the way life is? One kingdom or authority always rebelling against God's law. It's the world we exist in. And as the days seem to get darker for the church in this country, we can be encouraged by the Son of Man. He is the one that possesses authority. This is the truth that we must instill into our children. We must instill this gospel confidence that they would think right in a dark world. The Son of Man is coming. All other kingdoms will pass away. And as we take this comfort to heart, we can only ever grow in our worship for Christ. Well, let us ask the question a third time. The first time, who is this Son of Man? He's the second Adam who reverses the fall. Secondly, who is this Son of Man? He is God in the flesh who's reign goes on forever. The third time, who is this son of man? He is the suffering king who comes to redeem. He is the suffering king who comes to redeem. Look again at the text. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days who was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now there is overlap in this point with the first. The Son of Man is a savior figure. He comes to redeem the lost. But what I want to do is suggest to you that there is built into the Son of Man's ministry the idea of suffering. Indeed, suffering for the sake of his people. It's maybe not evident as you read these two verses, 13 and 14. It seems to be all glory and dominion and power. You're saying, where is the concept of suffering? What's interesting about Daniel chapter 7 is that it really is divided into two halves. The first half is the vision, and the second half is the explanation of the vision. As you study the full chapter, you see that in the vision, which we read tonight, the Son of Man is the central figure. In the explanation of the vision, the second half of the chapter, the Son of Man is nowhere to be found. His name is not mentioned. In fact, what you see, look down to verse 27, is that at the center of the vision are the people of the saints of the Most High. Verse 27, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So it's curious that the Son of Man is absent from the explanation. Now what's going on here, it's easily explained in Old Testament thought again, often the king is so tightly connected to his people that you can exchange one for the other and both are in view. You know this principle already. Think about David and Goliath. We can say David beat Goliath, and that's true. At the same time, I can say to you, Israel beat the Philistines, and you wouldn't challenge that assertion. Now think about the reality of the matter. There was no Israelite on the field of battle that day except for David. David beat Goliath. Israel beat the Philistines. You would accept both to be true. And the reason is because the king and his people are so tightly joined that we can exchange one for the other and both are in view. So what we have here is a reference to Son of Man in the vision. And then in the explanation, we see the people of the saints of the Most High. That then tells us from verse 27 that the people will follow the Son of Man in glory and exaltation and reign with him. But now look up to verse 25. We're told he shall speak words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they, the saints, shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, at a basic level, we can conclude that the people of God throughout history will be a suffering people. That's what that teaches us. The New Testament expands on that truth for us. We understand that discipleship to Christ is a cost. It involves a calling, a cost that would be one of hardship and suffering. But let's think through the implications of verse 25. If it is true that the Son of Man reigns and the people of God reign with him, if it is true that what happens to one happens to the other, and if it is true that the people of God suffer by implication, there is a suffering built into the Son of Man's ministry. And we could, we could expand upon that. We could build upon that as we go through the rest of Daniel. When you get to chapter 9, 
you find a timeline of sorts where the prince is cut off. It's the same language used in Isaiah 53. In, in chapter 12, we see again the people killed only to be resurrected. We could build it out from other places in the Old Testament. The indications are that the Son of Man came not simply to reign in glory, but on his way indeed as the means to that glory is a path of suffering. And that is why when you turn to the Gospels again, when you really engage in a close reading of the Gospel narrative, with eyes open asking good questions of the text, what you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, what you see, curiously, is that every single time Jesus speaks about his suffering, with one exception, he uses son of man language. The son of man, he says, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected. The Son of Man must be crucified. The Son of Man, Jesus says, will be condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles. He doesn't use other names, and it's not an accident. Jesus is intentional with his speech, and he's drawing on this theology here, saying it is in his mission statement to suffer. It is the pathway to victory. And so can you see how the gospel is knit into this vision a second Adam who came in the footsteps of mankind and lived a perfect life and triumphed because he was God in the flesh and the means towards that victory was suffering. It is the gospel according to Daniel and it is a gospel that we must reconcile our lives to. We are forced to ask questions that bleed out of this theology. How would I live as one who is truly in union with the Son of Man. If Jesus thought so much of this title, if it was his favorite name for himself, all over the gospel narratives with such theological significance being brought to the text, it needs to have ramifications for your life. How might I rightly follow in his footsteps, understanding that that entails suffering? In God's wisdom, in the way that he ordains, most likely different for every single person in this room. Suffering which includes simply the brokenness of life. How would I live in such a way that my life testifies that I am walking in step with the Son of Man? How do I respond better to the trials that come because that is part of the path that I'm on? How do I live in such a way that honors all that he is for me, the second Adam, God in the flesh, the king who suffers. And there are many answers to this question. I would suggest just one this evening. And that is that we begin by acknowledging that we are, in many ways, products of our time, which is to say we are consumers. We live in a consumer society. We are taught in everything that we do to consume. This is not a good thing. The consumerism that we see in society invariably has bled into the church. The church, in one way or another, tends to follow the patterns of society to its detriment. And so what we see in the church so often is a level of consumerism that is not biblical at a very 
practical level, that would manifest itself week by week with a desire for three things to do. Preacher, give me three things to do this week so that I can go and keep up my Christianity, so that I can tick the box three times and feel like I've done my duty as a Christian. Now, don't mishear me. Application is by no means a bad thing. We should all seek to apply the Word of God to our lives in very, very practical and tangible ways. But before we can apply, we have to behold. The best thing you can do is to stare at the sun. The best thing you can do is to gaze at the Son of Man. The best thing that you can do for your soul and for your day-to-day -day life is to recover the discipline of seeing Christ, to recover the lost art of pondering this man, to look at the text and to see all that he is for you, understanding that there is in two verses here, oceans upon oceans of theology that you cannot ever wrap your finite mind around, and it will nourish your soul and cause your heart to sing. And when that happens, That's when everything else that you're so concerned about receiving application for just starts to sort itself out. When you worship well, you will live wisely. When you engage in a sustained worship meditation upon the Son of Man, that's when your life will start to reflect one who is in union with the Son of Man. We must all give more to simply seeing the Son, the Son of Man, who is the second Adam. He came to reverse the effects of the fall. The Son of Man, who is God in the flesh and whose reign goes on forever. The Son of Man, who is the suffering King, who comes to redeem his people. Pray with me. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Father, we give you thanks that the son of man came. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We praise you for Christ. I pray that we would be yet more attentive to the text, the inspired text, that we would all be those who search out the gospels, who study Christ. Teach us, Lord, to behold the Son, trusting that our hearts will follow in worship of Him. Help us to live out a theology that honors the Son of Man, understanding who He is and who we are to be in turn. We praise you for Him, and we commit ourselves to you in His name. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. The last lines of Daniel's vision read, quote, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed, end quote. Israel in Daniel's day had been conquered and its people dispersed in faraway places. Imagine the hope Daniel's vision would bring them. But when this son of man is born to a poor couple in Bethlehem, Only a few recognize him. Have you recognized this Son of Man as Jesus, your Savior? There's great teaching and direction to help you understand more about Jesus on our website, 
TimelessTruthToday.org, TimelessTruthToday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts. There you'll find a large collection of past messages on Jesus. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're not part of a local congregation, come worship with us. Every Sunday at 10.30 a.m., the church is located at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks, California. If you're not in the area, check out the live stream on the church website, bethanyto.org. Come Monday, we continue in our series with part four of What's in a Name? Hope you'll join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.